This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Although the United States spends 16% of its gross domestic product on health care, more than 46 million Americans have no insurance coverage, while one in four report difficulty paying for medical care. In his new book, Differential Diagnosis, A Comparative History of Healthcare Problems and Solutions in the United States and France, our guest today, historian Paul V. Dutton, contends that Americans should look for new ideas in expanding coverage and cutting costs to France, whose health care system was named the best in the world by the World Health Organization. Dutton is a professor of history at Northern Arizona University and a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Paul Dutton, welcome to Weekly Signals. Good to be here. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Now, are you, uh, you're near Flagstaff right now, right? That's right. We're in Flagstaff, blue sky Flagstaff. All right. Is it blue today? Oh, very blue. Yeah. All right. Do you do you like it there in Arizona? Because I always thought it was a great state. Yes, I enjoy it a lot, uh, especially up here in the north, where the temperatures are much more like living in Lake Tahoe for your California. Right. Winters. Yeah. Absolutely. Going through the, uh, I guess it's the uh, the Flagstaff area, the, the highway that runs through there. I will see the pine trees and and think, you know, this looks like a fine place to live. Yeah, we love it. Good. Good. Now. Tell us about healthcare. Let's start way back at uh, well, not way way back, but but 1930s and 40s, uh, uh, where we're we're here in the United States. What, what's our situation in healthcare in the United States, and what would the situation in France be back then? Well, what's interesting, I mean, I begin the the book actually a bit earlier than you're you're talking right now in the uh-huh. 19-teens, and. The, the two healthcare systems were really strikingly slim, similar at that time. I mean, doctors were on a solo practice, fee-for-service. Um, coverage was through uh, private insurance companies, either not-for-profit or for-profit. And then big changes began in the 1930s, as you say. Yeah. In France, they passed a law in 1930 that, uh, whereby the physicians cooperated with compulsory health insurance for a portion of the population, in, in return, though, they were guaranteed um, the patient choice of doctor and physician's control over clinical decision-making, you see. And that has pretty much been a deal that French doctors have made uh, with their public insurance system uh, since that time. Of course, in the United States... Uh, you had the beginnings of Blue Cross, which was also a private, not-for-profit, at least in the beginning, uh, insurer that was covering hospital plans. But we didn't have a similar deal. In fact, it was blocked uh, by the American Medical Association and especially in the 1930s by Southern, uh, Southern Democrats, Southern legislators in the U.S. Congress, any such public, uh, mandatory public insurance system. Now, can we trace the difference in our systems then back to that one point in time? I mean, there's a lot, a lot of uh, water over the dam since then, but I think that if you had to look at some turning points, the French law of 1930, from which they eventually gained universal coverage, really only in, in 2000, though, and uh, then the American case, I think you would point to that first effort in the 19-teens to create some sort of compulsory system state-by-state state that failed, 
And then, of course, Franklin Roosevelt's decision not to push for health security alongside what we call social security. In other words, he had it. Originally, he was planning to do some sort of health insurance along with our pension program, our compulsory pension program, but he, he backed away when he saw how, how much it would cost him. And it, it eventually, essentially, I think he, he saw that it could risk the whole uh, uh, Economic Security Act. Wait, so you're saying that it, when you say it would cost him politically is what you mean, right? Yes, exactly. It could cost him the next election, but it also could doom his uh, much of his New Deal uh, program. So this was so Rose, Franklin Roosevelt's proposal for Social Security and this so-called health security mm-hmm. would have been uh, in in what year were we talking about? Nin- Nineteen thirty-five. Thirty-five. So it was right right. right around his first term was thirty-two. Yes. So, so it was in, in during his first administration. What was the difference in the politics between I mean, what was the di- dynamic in France that was so much different than the politics here in, in, in the United States? Well, I think that uh, there- the interesting thing about it is that the French. And again, I go back a little bit further than you're asking because it was the First World War, right? You yeah. remember, and I think probably many of your listeners who remember some of their history courses. The French actually, of course, uh, won the First World War, along with the Americans and the British and others. Uh, and in so doing, though, they got back a piece of their territory, Alsace-Lorraine, mm-hmm. which had been part of Germany. Now, the Germans had created a public compulsory health insurance system in the 1880s. And so when the French regained that territory, they got a public health insurance system with it, and the people there said, well, we're part of France now, but we don't want to give this up. So it was sort of forced on the French to consider a, um, a public uh, health insurance system at that time. And, and of course, the French unions, the uh, working groups and whatnot, work, uh, workers' groups, uh, militated for that, and they ended up with this 1930 compromise that I mentioned earlier. Right. Now, what, to what extent, what's the dynamic here? We're speaking with Paul V. Dutton. And the book is a deferential diagnosis of comparative history of health care problems and solutions in the United States and France. Um, to what extent, if any, did the, the fact that the French lost so many, so many people were killed and wounded in World War One, that you had a situation where the military, there was so much, I assume, so much care being given as a result of what happened in World War One, mm-hmm. that there was some kind of a cultural sort of instinct on the part of the French that we need to be taking care of our people since they, I mean, how many millions of Frenchmen died? Yeah. And, and what, does that play into this at all? Um, I would say, yeah, the numbers are approximately a million and a half dead and another million seriously disabled. Uh, so you had a tremendous burden on the population in terms of, you know, wiping out uh, you know, sort of uh, breadwinners and whatnot. Well, uh, and the state was taking I, I think care that of them. They, they, were, they were first and foremost yeah. looking to the Germans to pay for that, and that's the whole story of, okay. of rep- reparations and whatnot. I think that this uh, story of compulsory health insurance is, is, I think there's something to what you're saying, and there's an awareness of how important it was to take care of people and, the, the, of course, the disabilities that were uh, suffered. But I think it's more important, I think, is to look to... Mm-hmm. What was going on in in, in this regained territories yeah. and the militating of, of French workers in favor of some sort of health insurance? And of course, you had a centrist group. I would call them in French. You say Salut and they are sort of like a progressive group, if you will. Some of you uh, may be familiar with the progressive movement in the 1920s, 
um, they were akin to that group, and they were they wanted to sort of avoid class warfare, if you will, by giving something to the working classes. And I so I think that would play into it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, since 1935, has there been any other major, or since uh, Roosevelt? Mm-hmm. Did he ever reconsider, or has there been any other major attempts, say, until, well, let's move up to even 1990, uh, right. to have a universal health care in the United States? Well, Harry Truman, uh, Roosevelt's successor, of course, talked a lot about uh, some sort of national health insurance program. There were also proposals out of Congress um, during the 1940s, um, However, none of them really went anywhere, anywhere at that time. I mean, again, the, at that time, anyway, the American Medical Association was very powerful. As a confederation, it was politically able to um, speak to its roots in various locales. And, and as you remember, back in those days, uh, many, many Democrats uh, hailed from the South into Congress, but they were very conservative, relatively yeah. conservative. And compared to their Northeastern counterparts, and uh, they were really put a, uh, a stop to Roosevelt's programs to, for big health care reform, as well as Truman's that followed. The Clinton plan of the 1990s uh, would have moved us a long ways uh, toward universal coverage, but uh, in recent history, some of the, many of your listeners, I'm sure, lived through it. Um, there was never there was never really a, a strong positive consensus for the plan, and then of course once the interest groups got involved, the large health insurers, um, they were able to call out the misgivings of those who were already insured under our employer-based system, and of course that that really killed the plan. Uh, I want to I want to go back uh, to uh, to Roosevelt's era yeah. just for a second here to, to to understand the politics that are they're they're playing, being played out. Um, I recalled, and I think it was later on in his term that Roosevelt gave what is known as the Four Freedoms speech, mm-hmm. and he identified health as one of them. Yes, as one of our four freedoms. Yes, and was that? Do you rem- recall yourself? Was that later on that he gave the speech? Was this sort of after the horse had left the barn kind of speech? I wish we had health, health. Um, um, uh, freedom of health. Uh, uh, yeah, I could can't put an exact uh, year on that speech off the top of my head, but I will tell you that the French were listening to that more than the Americans. At that yeah. point, okay. if you look at the politics of it, I mean, the planners of the current French system were in London at that time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, of course, looking at what the British were up to. The British were organizing what is now today known as the National Health Service. Uh, the beverage plan it was known as at the beginning, and of course they were listening to what Roosevelt was saying, mm-hmm. and so that is uh, an interesting point. Is that by that time I think that Roosevelt was unable to bring along; he'd given up really, sort of a um, lament, if you will, at that yeah, point in his I think so. in his I presidency. Think so, ultimately, and and the re- but I'm sorry, the, but the reason I want to find out a little more about the politics here is why is it was was the AMA really entrenched in the South? As opposed to the Northeast, or was there? What was it about? If, if there is a connection between sort of the Southern Democrats, who many of whom were racist, and may that may have played into this too. They didn't want health care uh, for for blacks and minorities. I don't know. Maybe maybe not. But what was it about that dynamic that was so powerful? 
Well, I, I think you, you said some of the answer, actually. I mean, is that if, even if you look at the Social Security Act, I mean, agriculture is known as the agricultural exclusion, right, uh, for, for Social Security. And so the, the idea that you were going to allow uh, African Americans access to a, um, a large a compulsory pension program was really unpalatable to a lot of Southerners. Yeah. And so the agricultural exclusion uh, prevented, took agriculture out, uh, out of the equation for Social Security for a long, long time. And so that made it somewhat more palatable to the Southerners. The other aspect here, I think, is that this came out of the first battle in 1916 to 1918 when the, a group was fighting for uh, compulsory health insurance on a state-to-state basis. They defined, uh, this is the American Medical Association now, they defined solo practice, fee-for-service medicine uh, as the sort of the doctrine, the dogma, the paradigm for American medicine. And anything was compulsory about it, and any state intervention or government intervention was seen as antithetical to those values. They felt that it would violate doctor-patient confidentiality would violate the freedoms of physician and patient. No matter what reformers said, they would not budge on that, and they fought it vociferously. Uh, and they continued that position really right up through the 1940s. So the, um, a- the AMA really, this is where they really took root was in the South, is what you're... That's well, what no, you I'm not saying they took root, but they were, they were, they found, a, uh, they were especially effective because they had there in their, in members of Congress there, the medical societies of the Southern states, the, 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 the Democrats who were in power, who controlled the, uh, the Congress, yeah. who had the presidency, they were also uh, had an affinity with this point of view. Yeah. When, yeah. when did universal health care become socialized medicine? When was that rhetoric? When was all that uh, rhetoric, yeah. the uh, uh, red-baiting type of uh, rhetoric used? Uh, most, I, you know, it shows up uh, most prominently with the Truman attempts there. Wow. Um, it, because if you read, for example, the president of the American Medical Association, uh, in the 19, late 40s, 50s, they used to refer to anybody who was favor, in favor of national, um, uh, health insurance as having a pinkish pigmentation. I mean, this is, you look <laughs> at the Journal of the American Medical Association, that was common for the, uh, for the president to say this. Uh, and, of course, that meant that they were a pinko, that they were communist synthesizers, that they were traitorous in some way uh, to the United States in the Cold War, of course, which was then heating up, as you remember, the yeah. Stalin, the bomb, the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb in 1949, and Americans, this is the duck and cover period. So they were really pulling together two the fear of Americans of the Soviets and communism, and of course this idea of uh, socialized medicine or national health insurance. Yeah, it really. It, it of course we can't leave out the McCarthy um, uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy's exactly. input into all this. And it, it, this is a completely maybe a little bit off subject, but it it does remind me of just how much of an impact that the Cold War had on destroying. Uh, public policy debate in this country, how it undermined it on a regular basis, constantly. You, you were constantly faced with overcoming this false argument about whether or not we were going communist or not when, in a period of time when we should be discussing things like health care and, mm-hmm. and the national priorities. Um, so as we move through this, this, the 50s era, and I remember going back in, in, in my um, 
young life in the 60s and early 70s, the AMA was always considered just one of the most radically conservative organizations. I think it's modified itself over the over time, but even back then, I just remember it being very virulently, uh, you know, conservative and Republican at you know, that time. I want to move it right up to yeah. the present yeah. now. I want to yeah, pull sure. through all this, uh, and even uh, you know, it's just just as a footnote, I, I took a look at on YouTube the Harry and Louise. Uh, oh yeah, the Clinton ads. They choose you or we lose. In other words, if if we uh, if we have the government uh, telling us what kind of health care mm-hmm. we need. We lose. Uh, what do the French have to teach us? What What is it about that concept that's completely wrong? Well, I mean, I guess to get back to the reason why I wrote the book, I mean, I, my first book, of course, is, was on the French welfare state. You know, my, when I was working on that book, I noticed, especially in the field of medicine, that even though the French now have a very different system, the ideals are so similar. Tremendous arguments in France that are comparable and same kind of things you'd hear in this country. I mean, the French insist on patient choice of doctor. They insist on physicians' um, control of clinical decision-making. This goes back to that compromise of 1930 I, I, I mentioned earlier. Um, they want private practice doctors. So the vast majority of ambulatory care doctors, right, which most people see, are in private practice, many of them in solo uh, fee-for-service practices. And um, they also like private health insurance companies, not-for-profit and for-profit. So I, I was seeing this tremendous um, similarity in ideals, and I was like, well, why did the systems end up so differently then, you see? And, and we've been talking just for the last 10 minutes or so why that is, because the politics were different. The Cold War affected this country differently than France. Also, the trauma of the Second World War uh, affected the French, and also the 1930s. Uh, when the French had a period of oh, near-class warfare. And so after the Second World War, they uh, came together and said, you know, we don't want to have a civil war. Let's have a settlement here. We're going to give everybody uh, health care and, and good you know, security, if you will, all sorts of social security you know, in, the, in the small s, less sense of the word. So the French have developed a system um, in which I think it's really interesting for Americans to look at because... It has a safety net, but it also has a comfort net, what I call a comfort net. Mm-hmm. In a sense, it's something that, unlike the British system, which I don't think this country could ever go for, a national health service where physicians essentially work for the government, um, the French system is very disorganized. And uh, <laughs> some of your listeners who have been to France and seen strikes, they know how disorganized France can be. But it also has a good safety net system, and it has a place for the private sector and private insurers, patient choice, and things like that. So I don't know if I quite answered your question. Well, but what, would, what would be a first step here, you, you think, yeah. would be a good first step for if, if uh, uh, we, we had a president or a Congress that would get behind a plan that would, uh, that would closely resemble a French system? What would you change first about our system? Well, I mean, I, let, let me delve into a, a, a technical term, a couple of them, because I think if I could do away with one thing with a snap of my fingers, it, this might be it. Okay. I would get rid of, uh, of experience-rated health insurance, you see, mm-hmm. because if you look at how Blue Cross and, and Blue Shield, to some extent, developed in 1940s and 1950s, they were covering more and more people, and they would go into areas and they would sign. It was still employer-linked, right? They were employer plans, but there was community-rated insurance. Uh, if you were part of the group, you got that, um, that, that premium. 
And so, but once the commercials got involved, this is the commercialization of American medicine that really took off in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, that is experience-rated insurance, and it doesn't take very long if you do the math. If you've got somebody who's in an area, say, uh, say Flagstaff, right? I'm sitting in a city of 60,000, and there's a, there's a premium rate for a community-rated health insurance plan, and a commercial insurer comes in and says, ha-ha, I have identified an employer where the employees are a little bit uh, healthier than average, and their work is safer than average. I'm going to go to that employer and offer a somewhat lower rate. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, then that employer says, hey, I'm in business. I'll take the lower rate. Well, by definition, at that point, you leave uh, somewhat sicker than average and uh, people and also people who have jobs that are somewhat uh, more dangerous than average in the, uh, in the community-rated pool. So, and then, of course, this process goes on and on and on, and pretty soon the American health insurance market is so fragmented and cut up and complex and that you, it's the, the, you know, your risk history, yeah, your risk class is everything. And people, your listeners who have been out and tried to buy individual insurance plans know that. Yeah, yeah they can hardly buy it in, 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 uh, in small businesses that have any employees that have some sort of chronic condition um, are especially in difficulty these days because of that development of experience in community-rate insurance. So if I could just make all the insurers give one community rating for yeah. whatever area they operate in. That's one thing I would do overnight, and, and so you bring everybody in. Now, that, of course, is an ideal of the idea of, well, you know, the, the, the healthy should pay for the sick. Um, and that is something I think the French have embraced. Um, public polling reveals this more widely than Americans, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. We're speaking with uh, Paul Dutton. The book is Differential Diagnosis, A Comparative History of Healthcare Problems and Solutions in the United States and France. Um, then, I, is, is there a political dynamic now in place in the United States where we, I mean, it's on, the, it's on the lips of everybody running for president, I think more so on the Democratic side, but certainly uh, a big issue um, among the Democratic contenders for president about health care, health care reform. Everyone has a, a plan of some kind. Um, Is there it, anyone's plan out there that you, you uh, are attracted to right now? Well, I mean, I think that the, the Democrats, the first part of the question, let me take first. Okay. I think that uh, what the French case shows, and, and of course my book is historical and it's just two countries, completely comparative, um, it shows that you don't need a big bang to get to universal coverage. Like mm-hmm. I said before, they only achieved it in 2000 with this, this public-private combo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and that's, it was a series of deals. I mean, they made a deal with their doctors about the compromise about private practice and patient choice and whatnot. They also made a deal with their insurers through a, a series of turning points where nowadays they have a large public insurer, Sécurité Sociale, mm-hmm. uh, what they call Social Security, which which uh, provides what I mentioned before is this safety net plan, covers 70% of ambulatory care procedures. And then, of course, about 80-some people also have uh, a comfort net plan. This is a, a, a mutuelle, they say in France. It's a private health insurance plan um, that covers... Uh, beyond the 70%. So it, it complements the initial... Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of like, um, in short order, it's a little bit like Medicare 
those of you listeners who are familiar with the Medicare plans know that you can buy Medigap insurances. So it's, it's a little bit like that. Medicare Plus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that would be where I think there's a first lesson is that you don't need to go to a, a plan overnight, that this is going to develop over time. Um, and this, I think get back to the actual plans that are on the tables now, all the Democrats are offering, I guess Edwards I think was first out of the gate, um, and then the others came along. They all have within them these health ex- insurance exchanges. They call them different things. Yeah. Um, but they also have, uh, all of them have a public insurer option, yeah. which I think if you look at the overhead costs of, say, Medicare, the Center for Medicaid and Medicaid Services runs an overhead of about 3%. Yeah. Um, French uh, uh, public insurance runs at about 5%. Private health insurance companies in this country, if I'm generous, I say it's 14. Yeah, Many it's of them 18, are in 30. 18 to 20, I've heard mostly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there is, if you have plans on the table that people can take a public insurer option, I think you're going to find out Medicare is very popular in this country. Yeah. And I think you're going to find people gravitating toward that because costs will be lower uh, and the service is going to be good, and I think that it's going to be more pr- transparent and ultimately more democratic. Yeah. Um, so that's where I think on the democratic side. On the Republican side, I'm not seeing anything. Um, I'm hearing the same old, same old. Hey, yeah. you know, we had 87% of the people in this country covered under health insurance in 1977. Now we've got less. Uh, you can't tell me 30 years later that you're still going to offer just tax breaks and efficiency improvements and stuff. Uh, this, I, I just, as a historian, I look at that and say, you know, I'm three decades later. Let's talk seriously. Now, this is this is really lipstick on a on a pig kind of uh, politics, uh, yeah. and 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 I I. I think that you're absolutely right. Employers, let, let's look at the big companies, GMs, the Fords, they want out of the healthcare business. Right. And I think the genius, if, if that's the right word to use here, the genius of the, some of the Democratic plans here is that we'll, you want to give us options, we'll give the people options. And I think you're absolutely right when you say Medicare is an extremely popular uh, mm-hmm. program. And I think given the opportunity, given, given the cost-benefit uh, analysis here, people will choose the government. And as you said, they will look for a supplement to those who want a little bit more. And um, we're unfortunately going to have to wrap this up. Okay. Paul V. Dutton, uh, the, the book is Deferential Diagnosis, A Comparative History of Healthcare Problems and Solutions in the United States and France. Thank you very much for being here on uh, Weekly Signals. We appreciate you, you coming on. Well, thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.